Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Thank you, Alan, and good evening. You're watching ADH TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. To watch our content, both live and on demand, all you need to do is download the app for your phone or TV at your usual app store. You can also find all our shows as podcasts wherever you download your audio programs. Well, it's a truism of politics that, quote, he that would keep a secret must keep it secret that he hath a secret to keep, unquote. That line is from the hilariously prophetic, prophetic British television series, Yes Minister, which, if it were to be rewritten as a parody of the career of Scott Morrison, would have to be called Yes Ministers. It would have been difficult, of course, for Morrison to keep his clandestine portfolios secret forever, which really should have rung alarm bells to him from the start. It's no small irony that the man dubbed Scotty from marketing has done more than anyone this year to trash the brand that has dominated Australian politics since it was created under the guidance of Robert Menzies in 1944. And there's been no shortage of contenders for the party's chief wrecker lately. Matthew Guy and Matt Keane would have given Scotty a run for his money if this latest revelation hadn't been made. The Liberal Party is today at its lowest ebb since John Hewson told the nation they could have their cake and tax it too in 1993. The way back looks daunting, but only to politicians who sold their principles at the pre-selection phase of their careers. For what it's worth, if new leader Peter Dutton announced tomorrow a policy package of building nuclear power plants, selling the ABC and holding a royal commission into abusive power during the pandemic, his old boss Morrison would be off the front pages by tomorrow morning, Anthony Albanese would be off the front foot, and the Liberal Party would be back on the road to electoral dominance where it belongs. You're welcome, Mr Dutton. Well, we have a cracking show for you tonight. We've got the feisty Campbell Newman asking what happened to our larrikin spirit. We have the Executive Director of the Institute of Public Affairs explaining why Taiwan is freer than Australia, and I'll give my humble opinion about the political vanities of corporate executives. Now let's get on with the show. Now later I'll be speaking to Scott Hargraves, the new executive director of the brilliant think tank, the Institute of Public Affairs, about ESG, the acronym for Environment, Social and Governance, which is the moral guidebook for so-called corporate values these days. But first, Canadian psychiatrist and author Jordan Peterson published a piece in the Telegraph of London today exposing the quote, totalitarian colours of one of the world's leading professional service networks, Deloitte. Deloitte is the third largest privately owned company in the United States and its tentacles are everywhere. So we really should know what companies like this are up to. Uh, 
They are as active in the globalist movement as the United Nations, the World Economic Forum and various other unelected self-appointed moral guardians of ethical business practice. The Australian branch boasts that last financial year it contributed to policy, debate and outcomes on, among other things, climate and energy transition, gender equity and Indigenous reconciliation. A report by Deloitte found that recent extreme weather events were unprecedented, which is a dubious claim, and that climate change, if allowed to continue, will cost the global economy $178 trillion over the next 50 years. That figure is meant to frighten you in case you were wondering. This is all based on modelling which half a century of bogus climate predictions have proved, to put it politely, not to be very reliable. Like all globalists, Deloitte recommends a worldwide reduction to net zero emissions by 2050. Initially, this will, quote, temporarily lower economic activity, which is another way of saying some people will lose their jobs. I'm guessing none of them will work at Deloitte. But eventually, quote, those most exposed to the economic damages of unchecked climate change would also have the most to gain from embracing a low emissions future, unquote. This sounds like Santa Claus promising kids a present if they behave all year. Peterson rightly questions how long this initial pain will go on. It could be for generations, he says. Then, quote, this is Peterson talking, all this painful privation is not only going to save the planet, it's going to make it far worse, unquote. Peterson singles out Australia, by the way, for committing to 43% reduction in emissions by 2030, a decision he describes as, quote, delusional for a country that depends on the use and production of resources. He lists the countries where ordinary people are rising up against this new globalist agenda, but sadly Australia isn't among them. There is political re resistance in the United States though. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis announced legislation last month that would force retirement funds to stick, to, to stick strictly to their fiduciary duties and not discriminate against companies that failed to meet arbitrary ESG standards. DeSantis told Tucker Carlson recently, quote, the upshot of all this is we want to stop these masters of the universe from trying to do through economic power what they can't achieve at the ballot box, unquote. Those masters of the universe are not so restrained here in Australia, though. Australian Super, Australia's largest fund with $244 billion, doesn't hold back when claiming active ownership of the com companies in which it invests. It says, quote, we proactively engage with companies to influence their management of ESG and other issues. We also collaborate with other global investors to amplify our voice and have an even bigger impact on issues that can affect members." Unquote. Issues like the transition to renewables, which Australian Super, like most industry funds in Australia, is a champion of. How that, quote, affects members depends which way you look at it. One way is that the transition to renewables and the downgrading of energy based on fossil fuels will destroy businesses, cost ordinary workers their jobs, make energy more expensive and decimate small communities. 
Somehow I don't think Australian Super sees it that way though. Its website boasts it is collaborating with Climate Action 100, another of these globalist organisations that are increasingly imposing themselves on us. This collaboration will, quote, make an even bigger impact by engaging with the world's largest carbon emitters to take action on reducing emissions in line with, you guessed it, the Paris Agreement, unquote. And you thought your compulsory super was just being invested in Australian infrastructure projects to provide you with a retirement income. One company that Australian super probably hasn't invested in is Thungela Resources in South Africa. Thungela, mine, th sorry, Thungela mines coal for power stations. Two years ago, a London analyst valued the business as worthless. Its parent company, Anglo-American, sold it off after ESG busybodies pressured it to do so because, you know, coal. Since the war in Ukraine, though, demand for its coal has soared and profits have increased 3,000% to an eye-watering $590 million. Not bad for a worthless coal miner. Next time you hear some corporate elitist talk about ESG, remember you're hearing them openly admit they would rather virtue signal than consider certain types of highly profitable investments. Well, it was National Science Week a couple of weeks ago and the journos at the ABC were out hugging trees. Yep, that's right. Forget examining the inconsistencies in the so-called climate science that's sending Australia down the path to energy poverty and scarcity. The ABC was too busy conducting a poll of readers about which native tree they love most. Given we're talking about ABC readers here, I wouldn't be surprised if the wacky tobacco plant rates in the top 10 alongside the mythical tree on which the ABC's billion dollar budget grows. We couldn't help noticing there was no corresponding survey for which Australian cathedral was Australia's favourite, or which V8 car most of us wished graced our driveways. The survey is accompanied by a two-part series in which two ABC presenters travel around Australia on a horse-drawn buggy, just kidding, they fly everywhere, doing little documentaries on trees investigating their diversity, power, greenness, and their central role in stopping climate change. So they're a lot like the ABC itself when you think about it. In the first episode, one of the presenters walked through a Victorian mountain ash forest that had recently been logged for wood chips for paper pulp and compares it to what she imagines the Western Front of World War I looked like. Quote, churned over as if bombs hit every square metre, unquote. The place is full of bad energy and sad, she says. Not as sad as the real Western Front, I'm guessing. The viewers will vote for their favourite before a panel of tree experts or experts off their trees will judge the best according to four criteria. The role they play in the environment, their cultural importance, how they look, and how easily they can be milled and converted into a log cabin. I might have made one of those up. Look, it's perfectly fine for people to have favourite trees. Some people have favourite cartoon characters or pieces of music. 
It's a free world. This tree worship is mostly harmless green reverence, although in my opinion it does border on paganism at times. But is it too much to ask that all this tree hugging is not done on the taxpayer's dime? Now, Taiwan is many things to us here in Australia. For decades, it was our major source of components for electronic equipment, and now supplies most of our microprocessors. It's an island nation that lives under the constant threat of invasion from China, and seems to have grown accustomed to that, like Californians have with living on the San Andreas Fault. It exudes a typically happy, peaceful Asian vibe, with clean streets and lots of neon lights in the downtown area of the capital Taipei. And of course, it's the place that US politicians like Nancy Pelosi go to when they want to attract global attention and potentially spark World War III. But we don't really think of it as being one of the world's most free places, certainly not more free than us here in Australia. But in fact, that is the case, at least economically. My next guest, Scott Hargraves, the new executive director of the Melbourne-based uh, think tank, the Institute of Public Affairs, has uncovered some research that reveals Taiwan, after steadily growing for decades, overtook Australia on the International Index of Economic Freedom last year. He'll be explaining how this happened in a minute. But first, Scott has also written recently about the link between renewables and ESG or Environmental, Social and Governance, the new woke rule book for anybody wanting to operate at the top of the corporate world these days. He quoted sanctimonious Australian software billionaire Mike Cannon-Brooks saying a transition to renewables in Australia is, quote, not a particularly complicated equation. Let's get Scott in to elaborate. Scott, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Fred. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Now, the hypothetical transition to renewables isn't, quote, complicated equation for Canon Brooks, but what about the ordinary punters? How's it going to affect them? Well, that's why this has turned into an elite project, because ordinary punters understand that they're the ones that are going to cop it in the neck. They understand that their jobs are on the line as Australian industry becomes less competitive, as gas prices go up, electricity prices go up. It's, it's a very complicated matter and people who live in the real world also understand that you can't just flip an entire electricity grid that's been built over 100 plus years overnight, which is what Mike Cannon-Brooks seems to believe. He comes from a software world where if you're smart enough and you flip enough algorithms around and you learn to code very well, you can do amazing things and good luck to them. But that's not how things work in the real world of transmission lines and power plants and coal mines and everything that we actually need to keep Australia warm and supplied with reliable, affordable energy. Well, this ESG um, rubbish that from which all this renewable policy emanates from seems to be everywhere these days. What happened to companies simply making money for their shareholders? Absolutely, and that is the first duty of a company uh, to identify customers and actually serve them. And the thing that upsets me about ESG, and I wrote about Mike Cannon-Brooks because he was invited to this conference. Uh, ESG stands for Environmental, Social and Governance. And it's probably at one level okay for companies to think about uh, their environmental, social and governance agendas. But what it actually turns into is a package. You have to sign on for the lot. You have to sign on for climate alarmism. You have to commit to renewables. And so Mike Cannon-Brooks was the star attraction at an ESG conference 
where he said that he couldn't wait to take over AGL and organise to close down Bayswater Power Station in New South Wales and Loyang in Victoria, massive coal-fired power stations that actually provide uh, a huge amount of baseload energy in those states. And he wanted to close them down by 2030 on the promise of all kinds of renewable energy uh, miracles that were going to be forthcoming between now and then. Okay, now let's talk about Taiwan. Were you as surprised as me to learn that Taiwan is freer than Australia? Ah, oh, pleasantly surprised. Uh, I certainly had some awareness because of our research at the Institute of Public Affairs, uh, Fred, that Australia was slipping down the rankings. Um, we've been very good at producing more and more red tape. Uh, we've expanded the size of governments. That's basically been non-stop since about 2009 in Australia. As government grows, the scope for freedom shrinks. Uh, but I was pleasantly surprised to see that Taiwan had not just rejected authoritarianism uh, as it is on the mainland of China and authoritarianism as indeed it was when the nationalists first settled there. They've rejected it in every sense. They want a free entrepreneurial society where people can actually make their own choices and build businesses and, and export to the world. Uh, it's a terrific story. Sounds like what Australia used to be like. Now, Australians have, for the past couple of generations, grown accustomed to not having any serious threat to their sovereignty. Do you think the constant threat from China helps Taiwanese uh, value their freedom more? Well, as I say, it, it makes it all the more impressive that they've, they've not gone down an authoritarian road. They're not panicked. Perhaps it allows them to put things in perspective. Is that why they did a better job than Australia at managing COVID? Because they understand what real problems look like, that they don't overreact, that they understand that people can find their own solutions. Businesses can find their own solutions to all kinds of problems for customers if government will just get out of the road. Okay, so let's talk about the IPA's robust and passionate defence of Australian culture, or what's left of it, as some people might say. Our country was founded at the tail end of the Enlightenment when the idea of freedom, individuality, equality and personal responsibility were being understood as the best foundation for enabling as many people as possible to, to pursue their own happiness. And for most of our history, I think, we've generally understood this. But now, not so much. Scott, what were the big turning points, in your opinion, in our history when we started to lose sight of that original ideal? Well, that's, that's a wonderful question because we were, we were born free, as you say, uh, Fred. The Enlightenment you know, came out with the first fleet. It was literally, literally written into the instructions given to Arthur Philip. Uh, and then even at the time of Federation, this was almost like a, a perfection of the Westminster system that had been uh, brought to us by the British. Uh, itself part of Western civilization. When I think of turning points, Fred, I think of being in Sydney for the bicentennial. It was a Labor government. Bob Hawke was Prime Minister. Uh, the black armband view of history was around then. Isn't Australia terrible? And they uh, objected and protested against uh, the bicentennial, but Hawke was having none of it. They insisted on the slogan being celebration of a nation. Imagine if Albanese tried that on now. Uh, imagine how the elites would go absolutely crazy. So even as late as 1988, there was still a feeling that Australia was something special, something to be celebrated. It's still a view I think that mainstream Australians hold, but it's not one that you find in the elite institutions that actually run our country. So Scott, what's your advice to viewers taking back control of Australian culture? 
culture is something important to be valued. Our ideas, institutions, values, and our national character that you've written so eloquently about, Fred, our larrikinism, our egalitarianism. I think we can all do that in our everyday lives, is, is try and sustain those values and characters. I do think we have to uh, do two things with the institutions. We, we must never stop trying to hold them accountable to actually reclaim them uh, for all Australians, not just uh, self-serving elites, but we also have to build new institutions. Uh, we have to find new institutions of, of education, uh, of culture, of, uh, of broadcasting, uh, dare I say it, Fred. Uh, and, that's, and I think any, any Australian can get behind that in a, in a whole variety of ways. One thing we probably need to get control of again is our major political parties. I know this is a question without notice, but how do people take control of, of our parties? We, we seem to have lost control of our representatives, don't you think? Uh, we, we absolutely have. There's just too, too much um, uh, sand in the gears uh, of our political system preventing uh, ordinary members of political parties, ordinary voters actually holding their politicians to account. What we've seen with Scott Morrison is almost the, uh, the apotheosis of the end of accountability that uh, under the guise of an emergency, you can just hand power over to people and then forget about it. These things are done uh, away from closed doors, no scrutiny from parliament, which was actually suspended for a while. Uh, the, these, this is a real crisis in our, in our political system, in our democratic system, because uh, there's no accountability left anymore. And that, that really requires ultimately an active citizenry. That comes back to your previous question, Fred. We can't just rely on those institutions anymore. We actually need, all need to get active. Okay, let's talk about broadcasting again. One monolith of the culture is the ABC, of course. I noticed the, the IPA managed to upset the ABC's Media Watch program recently for daring to be sceptical about offshore windmill farms. In an email to the IPA's Gideon Rosner, host Paul Barry implied the cables that supply electricity from these offshore operations work without any problems. Gideon was invited to, quote, reconsider his statements. Do you think Barry is aware, uh, do you think Barry is aware of how censorious that sounds, Scott? Well, that's, uh, censorious is a terrific word to use, Fred. I think uh, censorship is really the desire. The ABC doesn't quite have the legal capacity yet to close down people with whom it disagrees. It, maybe, maybe that's what Paul secretly uh, uh, wishes for, but... Uh, it, it is the self-appointed role of Media Watch and increasingly the ABC generally to police the boundaries of acceptable discourse. It's not about actually correcting errors or anything like that. It is just identifying people who have stepped out, stepped aside from the orthodoxy, which, which, and that's its latest wheeze. Paul Barry quoted the Star of the South project, which hasn't even completed environmental assessments. These projects are being used to justify closing down existing baseload power stations on the promise of things that will be built in the future. And if you look at our website, ipa.org.au, you'll see Gideon's response. There are examples where offshore wind farms in the North Sea and elsewhere have failed due to problems with the transmission cables. Basslink failed uh, in Australia, the cable connecting Victoria to Tasmania with electricity. There are all kinds of problems that should be held up to scrutiny, but rather than hold all players in this debate up to scrutiny, Paul Barry and the ABC would rather just target anyone with whom they disagree. 
Yeah, it's a coincidence that their criticism only ever falls to one side. Also, uh, I noticed Paul Barry didn't mention that almost all uh, wind farms, are, offshore wind farms, are subsidised too. So they hardly pass the pub test in a lot of ways. Now, the same email also asked whether the IPA was funded by fossil fuel companies. The funding of the IPA is a private matter between private organisations and private donors, albeit within the conditions of tax deductibility. Scott, does Paul Barry know that his own organisation is also funded by the taxes of fossil fuel companies? <laughs> Perhaps they should hand back that portion of their billion dollars a year, which comes from the, uh, the profits of BHP and Rio and all those terrible companies who are exporting uh, millions of tonnes of coal every year to China and other countries, which are then burning them in coal-fired power stations. Yeah. Well, without those mining companies, they wouldn't have the equipment to broadcast anyway. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, have you looked at the price of copper lately, Fred? Yeah, that's, that's the other problem. But, um, and, and of course, the IPA uh, is funded by uh, over 8,000 members, uh, mainstream Australians, uh, some of whom, I dare say, probably will have worked in the fossil fuel industry because it employs a lot of people, uh, powering our homes, powering our industries, um, getting access to the exports that underwrite our national prosperity. Uh, I'd hope they would. And, uh, but it's funny, again, how the ABC never questions those companies like, you know, Gold Wind from China that, that build the wind farms uh, or, the, um, or the many other beneficiaries of subsidised renewable energy. Why are they never held to account for any incentives they might have in this process? Scott Hargraves, thanks for your time. Thank you, Fred. It's been a pleasure. That's the new Executive Director of the Institute of Public Affairs, Scott Hargraves. Now, I said last night that Australia became a foreign country to many people during the past two years. Our governments revealed a brutal authoritarian streak few of us realised they possessed. And many of the people themselves became not just mindlessly subservient, but also dobbers of anybody who didn't go along with the new regime. This happened in the blink of an eye. In February 2020, barely a month into the pandemic, a hotline set up by the Victorian government for people to dob in their neighbours received no less than 61,000 calls. The next month it was 69,000. It's almost as if we Australians were waiting for this opportunity to turn on each other, forgetting how fragile our freedoms were, or indeed that people had died defending them. Two years later, when the government graciously allowed us out of the country, those of us who rushed onto flights overseas were startled by what we saw. I went to England and Italy at the start of the northern summer and was amazed to see few reminders at all that there had been even been a pandemic. Unlike in Australia, people weren't even talking about it. And those stupid social distancing stickers had long since been removed. And except on some public transport, nobody wore masks, especially not politicians. It was as if Europeans valued their freedom more than we do. My next guest is Campbell Newman, the former Queensland Premier, who has also just returned from visiting family in London and Europe, and says he too noticed the contrast with Fortress Australia. Campbell, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. Great to be with you, Fred. And there is an incredible contrast now between, say, the UK and Australia. Uh, but perhaps we, I, perhaps we want to talk about actually, I think, how this, this actually developed because I think it predates COVID, mate. I think, I think really you could put it down to the 
the high vis and clipboard OHS class, who for the last 20, 25 years have been running around our workplaces saying, you know, uh, running safety meetings. And we now have a, a, a culture of, you know, sort of elimination of risk as opposed to a broader consideration of, of sort of, you know, trade-offs. Um, it's not really probably a, uh, I mean, I was trained as an engineer. It's probably, it's not what I'd call a, a valid way of approaching risk. It's the elimination of risk and to hell with the expense and perhaps the human cost. So I think that's how we've got there, mate. It's, it was a culture that was building in Australia prior to COVID. Well, we used to be dominated by rugged individuality and a, and a healthy disrespect for authority. How, <laughs> how, did we, how did we evolve into timidly oh, well, obedient servants of wokeness? Well, mate, I think that's the important thing about what you're doing and hopefully other commentators. We need to hold a mirror up and say to Australians, look at yourselves. You are not rugged individualists anymore. You are not self-reliant. Um, you know, bold, uh, you know, individuals who could look after yourself. You're crying for mama. You want government to, to, to provide the solutions. You seem to think that government can provide the solutions. It's a complete nonsense. But perhaps which I'm going to talk about some of the contrasts I saw between the UK and Australia that you were, you were alluding to. Well, look, I'll just give you this for your sort of viewers. I mean, you, you mentioned masks. Uh, there was nobody wearing masks in London or the country unless they chose to. No compulsory wearing of masks. Politicians in the Commons, and as we know, they're crammed in, uh, weren't wearing masks. And you come back to Australia, people are still wearing masks, and particularly we've got our politicians continuing with the pantomime of social distancing and mask wearing in our parliaments. Um, pubs, you know, what, what a sort of an eye-opener. To, to, and I mean, I knew they do this, they do this, but there they are in pubs in English summer, in the evening, spilling out onto the street. No way could you do that in Australia. Dogs, you can take the dog on the underground in London on an intercity train, you can take a dog to the pub, you can take a dog to a lot of restaurants, they'll let you in, but not in Australia because, oh, my God, oh, my God, you know, that, that what a health risk. Um you know, it, it really, there's just, there's a, uh, helmets. I mean, in Australia now for 25 years, we, this is where the, you know, that clipboard, you know, the clipboard high-vis brigade really got going. You know, UK, no one's wearing helmets on bikes. You know, no, no one's while riding bikes. No one's wearing helmets while riding those scooters. Now, now look, I, I accept the arguments that one should, but it's, it's, it's about, we're talking about compulsion and, and regulation. And look, we really have gone way, way down the road. And, and we're not a free country anymore. We're not. We're not, we're not into people making their own choice, you know, making their own mistakes and accepting the consequences uh, of their decisions. Well, exactly. One side of, of this increasing wokeness is that the government makes decisions for us on our behalf on, on whether things are safe or not. But another aspect of this, Campbell, is that it's, it's actually very divisive. I mean, going back to the, to the pandemic, one of the most telling examples, in my opinion, um, during the, the entire saga was the case of Hayden Burbank and Mark Babbage, two Melbourne footy fans who snuck into Perth last September mm. to watch their team, the Demons, play in their first grand final in 21 years. Now, both Burbank and Babbage were vaccinated and had tested negative for the virus. 
So they posed absolutely no risk to the West Australian public. But when they were caught, they had the book thrown at them and thrown in jail for three months, spending Christmas behind bars. What's worse, and this is my point, most West Australians cheered as they were dragged off to the cells. Now, Campbell, in a previous era, these two blokes would have been hailed as heroes for flipping the bird at self-appointed authoritarian narcs. Now they're public enemies. Will we, will, Campbell, will Australia ever return to the sort of happy country we, we once were? Well, we're on a trajectory that um, you won't see that uh, turned around. Uh, and again, I say it's time we put the mirror up in front of Australians and just put it out where we've, where we've gone to. And the example you've given is absolutely right. Once upon a time, we'd have told the politicians to get Nick. Um, but, you know, I look at the way Djokovic was singled out and not a particularly popular figure, but that's why the dogs were unleashed on him because he, you know, because he wasn't, because he isn't popular. Because people like Scott Morrison thought they could get away with it and they were playing the populist card by throwing down, you know, their, their sort of tough approach to, to COVID. You know, it, it really, it really is, it really is crazy. And what you were alluding to before about the dobbing thing, that really is um, it's just awful. I mean, you know, I can understand people, you know, sort of um, uh, being asked to cooperate in, in sort of, you know, letting the police know about high crimes that, that really impact uh, on Australians. But to dob on your neighbours, that does divide us. It puts people against uh, one another. And we've also seen terrible scenes where, you know, within families, like, you know, the guy who gives really spectacular haircuts, you know, within his family, um, he got grief because he, he couldn't and wouldn't be vaccinated he, he, for medical reasons. He's a cancer survivor. But um, he was given a lot of grief uh, internally in his family because of that, even though it was, a, you know, it was a necessary decision for himself. So these sort of fights have played out not just between households and between you know, different groups of people, but within, within families at all as well. And that's just dead wrong. It's not the role of governments, that's for sure. Now, let's talk about, speaking of governments, let's talk about the Queensland politics, specifically this treaty the government is on a path to signing. Yesterday, Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk signed a statement of commitment to a treaty, which sounds to me like virtue signalling, but with bits of paper and ceremonial formalities. The statement says, in part, that the path to a treaty is, quote, a journey, not for the timid, but for those who are courageous to confront our uncomfortable past, the curious who long to find out and live with the truth, and the optimists who dream of the possibilities of a future where we live comfortably with the past, unquote. Campbell, do you think this uncomfortable past that they refer to will include anything about the truly brave men and women who built Queensland into the thriving state it is already? Oh, not at all. But look, what role goals you know, Palaszczuk BS, as usual. And yes, it's a journey. It's a journey that will line the pockets of consultants um, and keep armies of public servants employed uh, and will have us continuing a tailspin of self-loathing and self-hatred about what we've achieved. The past is the past. Uh, we have now, and as I, as I sort of look back on history, we have now been saying sorry for 20 years. Now, there was a, a sorry, a national sorry day, and that has continued. There was a march across Sydney Harbour Bridge um, where 
uh, where people did come out in solidarity, but there is no end to it. And meantime, where there is real disadvantage in Aboriginal and, and Torres Strait Islander communities, you know, the activists, uh, whether they be uh, you know, of that race or people who are white, really don't come to grips with those problems of disadvantage, as people like Jacinta Price point out. I mean, you know, we, 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 we really need to recalibrate here. We are one nation that we need to come together, be unified, and not seek to, and, and not be divided by all these different sort of, um, you know, by being sliced and diced in this sort of way. And this is really dangerous stuff. And, and interesting, there's even one of the people in the last 24 hours up here has been quoted in the media saying, oh, look, I don't know where the process ends. Well, that just shows you how fraudulent it is. What is the end game? What, what, what are we meant to achieve out of this? I'll say what I'd like to achieve. I'd like to achieve a Queensland where every a little girl, a little boy who's grown up in those communities of disadvantage I mentioned have exactly the same uh, social and economic uh, opportunities as, as, say, the kids in, 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 in other parts of Queensland. That's what I'd like to see. And that those communities have real real economies and real economic uh, opportunity and, and real jobs. Uh, but, you know, that's not what this is about. This is just about a, an interminable uh, process of self-flagellation uh, and, and self-doubt and self-loathing. And for those kids to be judged by the content of their character, not the colour of their skin. Absolutely. We might mate. have heard that before. Absolutely, mate. It's like, yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, 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 yeah, too light. But just on a technical point, Campbell, can a state even sign a treaty with its own citizens? How does that even work? Well, I, I don't know how that's going to work, really, but I, I suppose at the end of the day there, there are underlying things there that really concern me about, you know, what does it mean? You know, what does it really mean or, you know, um, you know the, the party's concern? You know, does it mean that there will be ultimately a, a separate deal for, um, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? Do they have super super rights to every other citizen of Queensland. Um, there's a very good piece that's been out in the Australian by Janet Albrooks in the last 24 hours, which uh, I, I don't know when this guy is going to go to air, but I encourage people to read it. Because she goes through a, a, a sort of a, a quite plausible, you know, contrived example of what can happen with that other process that uh, Anthony Albanese has got going, which is, is seriously bad news as well. That, that ultimately the courts will be deciding uh, and making calls on things that are completely at odds with the statements, the reassuring, you know, warning covering statements we're getting, particularly from Labor figures, about where this goes. It can ultimately, and I believe will, end up in places that, that people really need to um, wake up to. The road to hell is paved with good intentions, Campbell. Now, look. Before, quickly before you go, another Queensland question, uh, but in relation to Canberra. Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek has announced she will block Clive Palmer's proposed coal mine in Rockhampton because it will, quote, likely have unacceptable impacts to the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park, unquote. She seems to be forgetting that the reef has been given a clean bill of health and hasn't been affected by human, human activity. Campbell, just quickly, is Plibersek using the Great Barrier Reef as an excuse to block a political opponent's mining project? 
Look, I believe she is, um, but there's another project that Clive's got as well, which I think is probably the more telling one, which is the idea about building a coal-fired power station. Um, the, the, the project you've just alluded to is close to the reef. It's it's in a coastal catchment, and it would require, you know, quite a lot of scrutiny. And I'm I'm quite clear about that because you know coal mines do affect. Um, uh, or have the potential to affect water that comes off the mine mining lease. So you know you have changes to the pH and sediments and the like. So the question about just the question is really could it be um, put forward and delivered in a way that demonstrated no impacts on the reef? Well, that's a matter for Clive and his company as a proponent. But just to rule it out smacks of political opportunism. But to his, to the power station issue, I mean that's been blocked as well. And you know that speaks real volumes about about politics and people's agendas. So you know I, I'm 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 probably more concerned about that one because you know we do need reliable baseload power, and we and we particularly need it now as some of these older power stations, not just in in New South Wales but in Queensland as well, are starting to have some issues. And and, and renewables aren't going to cut the mustard totally for our power needs as we well know. Campbell, we'll have to continue this conversation when you come on in two weeks' time. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Fred. It's been great to be with you, mate. That's Campbell Newman, who is exactly the kind of common sense politician the Coalition needs right now. Now, before I go, you might have seen that Liz Cheney, the daughter of former Vice President Dick Cheney, has lost the primary contest for her seat in Congress to represent the state of Wyoming. Cheney has been in the seat for three terms and was one of the best known rhinos, Republican in name only, in the United States. She was beaten by a newcomer called Harriet Hageman, who was backed by her arch nemesis, Donald Trump. In conceding defeat, she declared, quote, now the real work begins. I have said since January 6 that I will, I will do whatever it takes to ensure Donald Trump is never again anywhere near the Oval Office. And I mean it, unquote. Well, whatever she has planned, it could hardly be worse than what the FBI did this week by raiding his home and taking away boxes of documents. It doesn't matter what they throw at Trump. He just keeps bouncing back much to the annoyance of the crocodiles in the Washington swamp. To outsiders, the animosity that Democrats, rhinos and the mainstream media feel towards Trump never looks politically motivated. It simply looks like they hate him for being gauche and a former reality TV star. If only these critics were more like you and me. We don't hate Joe Biden because he's a corrupt, doddery old fool, which is true, but because he's the worst president in United States history. Well, that's all from me. Thanks for watching. And remember, tell your friends to download the ADH app to their phones and TVs where you can watch all our content live and on demand, and it's free. And I'll see you tomorrow night at nine o'clock. Good night.